Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 42. I want to share with you a message on the subject of water baptism this morning. And I believe that it's a very essential doctrine for the believer to understand. And uh, consequently, the Lord laid it on my heart. I know there's a lot of things said about baptism. I remember one time hearing that in Texas they had such a tremendous drought. We've had not enough rain here in Florida, but we never have the problem they have there. I was told that one year it got so dry in Texas that the Church of Christ was sprinkling and the Baptists were using a damp cloth, and the Methodists were giving rain checks. I've never quite had it that bad here in Florida, and I don't think we're going to. But uh, all the churches that are of the uh, traditional faith have always emphasized a, a deep importance on the subject of water baptism. Beginning with the 38th verse of the second chapter of Acts, it says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward or crooked generation. Then they that gladly received his word were what? Were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching, and fellowship, and breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. The scriptures teach us that there are several ways to declare the gospel. We're going to look at one of those ways this morning. Scriptures do declare several ways that, that the gospel can be declared. One, of course, is the most prominent, and that is through the foolishness of preaching or witnessing or telling it uh, with others, sharing the gospel with others through uh, words being spoken. Another one is through example. The scripture says that uh, the world should be able to tell that you've been with Jesus. They ought to be able to see the Christ-likeness in you. The third is by what we would call symbol or illustration. Now, we don't go as as uh, believers today in the non-traditional churches, we don't go as much for symbolism as your uh, more ecclesiastical type churches do. But the Lord did give us two symbols that through which we could witness and testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first one, of course, is communion. He said, this do in remembrance of me, and in doing so, you do declare the Lord's what? Death. You do show a symbol or a type of the death of Jesus Christ till he comes. The other one is baptism. Scripture says in Romans 6, 4 that we are buried with Christ in baptism and we have been raised up to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. This is a symbol. But many people do not understand the, the uh, seriousness, the depth, the importance of this symbol. So consequently, uh, we call it an ordinance. Now, I know that the uh, higher churches, if I may use that term, the more ecclesiastical type churches, uh, use it, uh, call these things a sacrament. The Roman church and those that are offsprings of the Roman church, um, the uh, Anglican church and so forth, declare these things to be a sacrament. Now, the difference is, to me, a sacrament is God doing something for me, no matter what my spiritual condition is. That's a sacrament. For example, when I was a baby, my mother, because of a friend of ours, very, very seriously was warned that I needed to be taken into the Missouri Lutheran Church and be baptized. 
They took me in as a baby, and I was sprinkled as a baby, and the act of that baptism was supposed to wash away my original sin. And then later on, there would have to come another time when I would go through catechism and then make a declaration to uh, become a part of the body. But that baptism was supposed to wash away sin. Now, nowhere in the Word do I see that baptism washes away sin. But because they call it a sacrament, because it's supposed to do something for me. We tend to call it an ordinance because an ordinance is an outward rite symbolizing an inward spiritual experience. Let me say that again. An ordinance is an outward rite symbolizing an inward experience already. We partake of the Lord's Supper declaring that we have died with Christ. Declaring that He did die in our behalf and that He is coming again. It's an outward expression of what we believe and have experienced inside. Baptism is an outward declaration of what is supposed to have already taken place inside. Now, if a person is baptized before they're saved, they go down a wet, dry center and come up a wet center. That baptism has not done a thing for them because it is not for unbelievers. It's not for the sinner. It's for the believer. And uh, I believe that when we are baptized, we are blessed of the Lord, however, because we have been obedient. And in the step of obedience and faith, we have responded. And consequently, God blesses us for it. You know, many people do not understand the history of this doctrine, and I can't get into it too extensively this morning. Just let me just share a few things with you, because Peter said that there were going to be false teachers that would come in amongst them, and that they had to watch out for these false teachers, be on guard from them, and, and make sure they did not come into the flock. And it didn't take very long, but what we find as the epistles were written, that false teachers were coming in, even concerning this very thing. There were those in the early church that began to teach baptismal regeneration, which means you go to the pool, and when you get in the pool, there is salvation. There your sins are washed away. There you become a child of God in the baptismal pool. That is error, according to the Scriptures. Then another one is that salvation is in baptism in joining the church. You are baptized into the church and not into Jesus Christ. It's a baptism uh, of obedience to Jesus Christ. But they say you are baptized into the church and coming into the church, therein is salvation. The Roman church says that the church was there before uh, anything else. And so consequently, you have come into the church and there is life. If you were put out of the Catholic church, you were put out of eternal life. There is no life outside the church. Now, an inquirer coming to be baptized would be told that they're being baptized to join the church. And, and, and just let me say that... Uh, that was one of the problems they had in the church of Galatia. That uh, people were also being baptized and being circumcised and all these things. Uh, Paul says, who's bewitched you? Now you started out in faith to go back to the things of the flesh now, the rudiments of the flesh, to, to get involved to try to find or earn or work for your salvation. It didn't work, that doesn't work that way. But just to give you a little short history, by the year 1311, sprinkling had not only been introduced in the church, but at the Council of Ravenna, they decided that at that time that sprinkling was to be the only method or mode of baptism for the church and that uh, immersion was heresy. There was a tremendous turnaround from the, the early church when the apostles were living and the epistles of the, of the New Testament were written and the year 1311 already, it had gone so far as to come to the place where the church was saying from now on, no one is to be baptized by any other method but by sprinkling. And if they were caught immersing people, they could be put to death because that was total heresy. 
You'll read, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, that all down through history, though there were obedient believers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who in spite of what the church said, continued to re-baptize. They called them, uh, at one place in the church history, there was a group called Anabaptists, which means re-baptizers. But you'll find that all through history, there were those that believed that there was only one method, scriptural method of baptism, and that was believer's baptism by immersion. And in 1535, just one of the incidences of history, uh, Charles V of the Netherlands slew over 30,000 believers who believed in rebaptizing or believer's baptism. And in many instances back in those days, the church fathers would take those who were rebaptizers out into a river or out into a lake or over to a, a uh, wherever they could find enough water to do so. And they'd say, you want to be rebaptized, do you? And they would take the believers and hold them under water until they would drown for, the, for the, their testimony for Jesus Christ and believing that immersion was the scriptural method of baptism. In August of, of 1644, the Anglican Church, the Westminster Assembly of Divine, voted 25 to 24 that sprinkling was the only way that the church would baptize. This is a very precious truth that we hold today, a very precious doctrine that we hold on to today. And very few of us realize the tremendous price that was paid for us to be able to inherit and receive and be, to be able to enjoy this experience today. There are some that come and make a profession of accepting Christ, but say they refuse to be baptized, that baptism is not for today, that when Paul and the arrest apostles died, that was the end of it. It wasn't necessary anymore, just as they say of other gifts and man manifestations of the Spirit. Some are content yet today with sprinkling. They say, well, I was baptized in such and such a way, and, and if it was good enough for my mom and my dad and my grandfather and my grandmother, that's good enough for me, and I'm not going to change. And then there are those, of course, that are totally ignorant of the Bible's teaching and have not stepped out in obedience concerning water baptism. I just want to say to you that what your mom and dad and grandmother and grandfather did does not determine what you and I should do. Our determination uh, concerning this matter should be based upon one thing alone, and that's what? What does the Word of God say? I say that because we had an elderly lady, and I say elderly, I think when we met her, she was in her 70s, in one of the churches we ministered in, and when we went to that church, we were told by all the officers of the church, here was a lady in a Baptist church, by the way, and she was teaching a Sunday school class, but she had never been immersed. Why would you have her teaching a Sunday school class if she's being an example unto the believers if she's never been immersed? And they said, well, she made a promise to her mother on her mother's deathbed. Her mother had been of another church. I uh, had promised on her deathbed that she would never deny her baptism as a baby by being immersed as an adult. I said, what kind of a promise is that to make? Is she more afraid of what she would be doing to her mother than she is what she would do to God? If God's word says that she is to be immersed, if that's scriptural baptism, if that's believer's baptism, are you saying that she should hold to that when she realizes it's against God's word or ask God to forgive her for making that kind of a commitment contrary to his will? And now that she is, her parents have passed on, that she is responsible to the Lord for being obedient to the Lord to be baptized. Oh, no, they said. Don't ever say a word to her about that. Well, I taught on baptism one time in that church. And they were, there were many people that just thought, don't, don't push it too hot. But you know that later on that woman was the first one that came up and she said, I 
need to be baptized scripturally, to be obedient to my Lord. Will you please baptize me? So she knew what the word of God had to say finally. And she had to decide. That's what Jesus said. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. If the decision ever has to come that I would have to make a decision whether I would do what Beverly told me to do, contrary to the word of God, or what the word told me to do, I wouldn't have any choice involved. I'd have to do what the word says. I've never had her tell me to do anything contrary to the word that I can think of right offhand. But if that choice ever had to come, let me think on that for a while. <laughs> If that time ever came, I would have to make that. There would I have to back off. If that time ever came, there would have to be no decision made. My decision was made back when I said Jesus was Lord of my life. What is the meaning of the word baptism? The literal, literal Greek word there are several for it is baptismus and baptisma, which are the verbal nouns of the verb baptizo. Baptizo, which means to whelm over or to cover wholly with a fluid. To whelm over or cover wholly with a fluid. That's the meaning of the word, Greek word, from which we get the word baptize. And I'll tell you a little later on that that was not translated from the Greek. It was transliterated from the Greek because of a fear on the part of the ones that were writing it. But uh, it means to whelm over or to dip into a fluid. In the Dutch, the word is dupen. It means to immerse or dip into. In the German, the word is toffen. It means to dip in. There is a word in the Greek, rantidzo, which means to sprinkle. But that's not the word baptizo, which uh, is the Greek word every time it talks about uh, baptizing someone. Uh, the, there's another word, imbapto, uh, in Matthew 26, 23 which Jesus used when he said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Imbapto, dip into. And, but the word baptizo has always meant to cover with, wholly cover with, or to immerse in a fluid. Now, as I said, the King James translators were very, very concerned back then. They didn't want to irritate or upset King Jimmy. And King Jimmy was very faithful to the church at that time, and if they were to say, repent and be wholly immersed or overwhelmed in the fluid in the name of Jesus Christ, they might have gotten into trouble. So rather than to translate that word, they just literally transliterated it. It says, baptizo, baptized. Now you can just decide whatever you want it to mean. You want it to mean sprinkle? Great. You want it to mean immerse? Great. But we're not going to get ourselves in trouble. See, that's why they did not translate it back then. Now, what is the Bible method of baptism? It'd be easier for me to stand up and say it's immersion, but I want you to be convinced from the word itself. So grab your Bibles. We're going to take a very fast Bible study on this word, baptizo. Baptism, all right? First of all, Matthew 3.16. I want you to note that always the terms that are used around this, the, the description of the surroundings of this word, baptize. Matthew 3.16, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went what? Went up straightway what? Out of the water. Isn't that amazing? Uh, it doesn't sound like they were doing a sprinkling job there right then. He came up out of the water. There was a lot of water. There was depth of water. He had gone down into the water. He came up out of the water. Quickly turn to Mark, the first chapter, verses 9 and 10. Mark 1, 9 and 10. 
And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John, what? In Jordan. Now, by the way, this was 25 miles away from Jerusalem. He came to be baptized and straightway coming, what? Up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now, it's interesting that when John baptized, it was only those that were old enough to comprehend the purpose and the reason of baptism that came for baptism. There's no indication that John was out there baptizing babies. Only those that would come and respond to the message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the third chapter, verse 23. John the third chapter, verse 23. Now it tells again uh, concerning John the Baptist baptizing, but he was baptizing in a specific place for a specific reason. John 3, 23. And John was baptizing in Anon near to Salem. What? Because there was much water there. Well, if immersion wasn't the method of baptizing, why did he have to have much water? He could have gotten a 500 repeater water gun and gone around and had mass revivals. Just sprinkle them in, you know, one after another. I'm not being facetious, but I want you to see that the Scripture by the Holy Spirit is very, very precise concerning the circumstances surrounding baptism. All right, then Acts the 8th chapter, verses 38 and 39. This is concerning Philip and the eunuch, Ethiopian eunuch. Philip had been having a revival in Samaria, and the Spirit of God led him out into the wilderness and had him come to the chariot where the eunuch was going along trying to read the book of Isaiah. He explained unto him the gospel of Jesus Christ, and uh, then he said, well, why can't I get baptized? And verse 38 and 39 said, and he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they what? Went where? Down where? into the water. They went down ace into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. He didn't go down and get a handful of water and come back up, you see. And he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. All of these verses emphasize the fact that in each instance of baptism, there was much water. The fact is that the primitive mode, the New Testament Scripture's mode of baptism is well established in biblical Christianity and biblical scholarship. In fact, I, I'm convinced today that no pedo-baptist or child or baby baptizer would risk his scholarly reputation to argue that immersion was not the apostolic practice of baptism. They, the question today is not whether it was the method or the mode of baptism in New Testament times, but whether we should restore it. Is it that important that we should restore it? There's no sense in getting all upset about it as their philosophy. We should just, I mean, we've got it this way now. Why make waves? Well, they should make waves because I believe that immersion is the only scriptural method of baptism because it is declaring a biblical truth. It is an example. It is a, a, an illustration or a symbol of what is supposed to have taken place in our lives. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to be buried, I surely hope they don't go out and sprinkle some dirt on my forehead and tell me that I'm buried after I die. I, you know, it just wouldn't be good. When I get buried, they're going to bury me. Maybe. Next point. Who is to be baptized? A. Wonder why this is in here. Repentant believers. Acts 2.38. Look at it with me. Acts 2.38. Peter had just preached his message on the day of Pentecost. And they came and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were pricked in their hearts. 
They knew that what he was teaching was the truth. And Peter turned around and said, just come forward, shake the preacher's hand, and get baptized. No. He said, then, said Peter, verse 38, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Another translation is, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ because your sins have been remitted, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Secondly, who should be baptized? Understanding and receptive believers. Those who can perceive the fact that they are lost, that they need a salvation and can come and receive Jesus Christ. They are the ones that need to do that. Uh, Acts 8, Philip and the eunuch again. Let's go back there concerning understanding and receptive believers. Acts 8, verse 35, 36, and 37. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scriptures and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a what? Certain water. Isn't that interesting? It always emphasizes that there's something unique about that particular place. Certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Now, can you imagine coming to a baby and looking that baby in the face and saying, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. A baby has no perception of his sin, of his lost condition. This is why we do not teach infant baptism. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then went down into the water and he baptized him. And then again in Acts, the second chapter, verse 41. Acts 2, 41. After Peter told them to repent and be baptized, the response was as follows. Then they that, what? Gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They have to be those who have understanding and ability to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the home of Cornelius, in Acts the 10th chapter, verse 44, Acts 10, 44. By the way, this was a very difficult thing for poor old Peter because he couldn't imagine a Gentile getting saved. And the scripture says, while he yet, while Peter yet spake the words, he was in the middle of his message. There are a lot of people who say, well, I've got to be absolutely right. I've got to be absolutely perfect before I get baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, here Peter just knew that at least God let me finish my message. This is while he was yet speaking the words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them that heard his word. They heard the word, they received the word, they received the baptism in the Holy Ghost, they spoke in tongues. They were all old enough to do that, by the way. Now, I know that when a baby, you know, makes those syllables, I, I, he's not praying in the Spirit. But when an adult does it, he has to shut off this educated idiot box in order to get out what the Spirit wants to say. And so they were old enough to do that, and for they heard them speak in tongues and magnify God. And then verse 48, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Acts the 16th chapter, verse 15. Acts 16, 15. The house of Lydia, talking about the house of Lydia. It says she was baptized and her household. Now immediately the pedo-baptists say, Now see there, there was a mother and all of her little babies were baptized. That's assuming out of silence. If I believed, or if Beverly believed, and my whole household were baptized, 
if Ed French believed and his wife believed and his whole household were baptized, there wouldn't be any babies baptized there, would there? Evidently, Lydia was an older lady, middle-aged lady, or in her late 20s or 30s, where the children were old enough to understand and receive the Scripture. Maybe she was almost 30, I don't know, but she was somewhere there so, so she and the children could totally understand the Gospel and receive it. And of course, there's another place when the Philippian jailer said that, Believe into the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thine household. Now, he was uh, the head of that jail. He evidently had a family of children, but there is no evidence there that babies were baptized. In each instance, the whole house was baptized, but they had received the gospel. There isn't an instance in the Scripture, a text in the Scripture that you can give to declare that a person, a, a baby should be uh, sprinkled or baptized. I want to make that very clear to you. Just quickly, let me insert here also that baptism does not play, replace circumcision. There are some groups that believe it replaces circumcision. If that were so, then we would not be baptizing girls. We'd simply be baptizing boys. If that were so, then it would have been ridiculous, even more ridiculous for those in Galatians who were going around to those who had, been, uh, who had accepted Christ, had been scripturally baptized, telling them that they also had to be circumcised. If baptism replaced it, then it would not have been uh, told that they had to do it in place of baptism, uh, along with their baptism. And I, I'm convinced of this enough that I really sincerely believe that no truth-seeking, God-fearing person who is uh, improperly baptized can be content with it. I believe it's clear enough in the Scripture that you and I should know that if that's what the Word of God says, then that's what I want to do. I want to be, be obedient to the Word of God. Now, why should believers be baptized? I'm trying to get through as quickly as I can here today. Why should believers be baptized? First of all, it's an act of obedience. Jesus Christ commanded that we be baptized. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, in the 19th verse, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. Now, can you imagine a disciple coming to you and saying, you have received Christ, now I want to baptize you. And they said, no way. Hey, I've accepted Christ, but nothing more than that. Well, now, Jesus told me to lead you to Christ, teach you the word, and then baptize you. Hey, I'm saved. Don't worry about the baptism part. That's disobedience. It's a step of obedience to be scripturally baptized according to the word of God. Jesus said, if any man loves me, he will keep my words. So it's a, an act of obedience. The second thing is that it is a testimony. If you don't believe being baptized is a testimony, then you don't know what's happening over in Africa today. In many of the African nations, Muslim uh, radicals are watching baptismal services of believers. And in the past 10 years, there has been a literal slaughter of Christians in Africa. They will stand back with photo, uh, telephoto lenses and take pictures of those that are being baptized. And within the next week or the next month or two, they'll find that person either with a bullet through its head, a knife through its heart, or poisoned to death. In many cases, strangled to death. In many cases, torn asunder, their bodies torn asunder. Because they have made publicly a declaration that I have died with Christ. I have been risen to walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ. And I want the world to know that I'm his and he's mine. And with that testimony, they have been marked for death. 
And in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. And it is an act of obedience and a public testimony to the fact that we have been buried with Christ and risen to walk in newness of life. That's in, in as much as it's a testimony. First of all, it confesses a finished work. Christ finished the work. Now, when he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. When he rose again, I rose again. When he walked in the newness of life, I stepped out in newness of life. In, in the uh, Old Testament, that was the last step that a proselyte being brought over, as Jesus talked about the Pharisees going all over the world to try to find a proselyte, they would study all the Jewish religion, and then as a last act, they would be immersed in water and would be given a new name. They would no longer declare anything to do with the former life. By the way, you know today in the Jewish family, or in your Orthodox Jewish families, if a person comes to Christ, receives Christ, they'll have a funeral for that person. That son doesn't exist anymore. That daughter doesn't exist anymore. They're dead. They're gone. They're not mine anymore. I don't have anything to do with them anymore. You know, that's what we're supposed to do when we come to Christ. We're supposed to say, that old life is a thing of the past. I'm dead to all the old life, and now everything in my life is new. I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. I'm a new creature. Christ finished that work for me. He paid the full price. And it expresses there a separation from the world and a new fellowship relationship with Jesus Christ. He's alive, and I'm alive because he's alive. I love him because he loved me. His spirit bears witness of my spirit that we are the sons of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I am now a citizen of a new kingdom of God. If I then be risen with Christ, I am to seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of the Father. See, there's a totally new relationship for those, and it's an outward expression that that's what's already taken place in my life. It's a finished work that Jesus Christ has done. So I, in conclusion, I want to say, number one, that baptism is not salvation. The person is to believe, repent and believe and receive Jesus Christ first, and then you're going to declare outwardly what Christ has done in your heart. It does not replace circumcision. It is not a premise for fellowship. If I find someone over here that's been sprinkled, I don't say, brother, you are in heresy and I'll have nothing to do with you. The biggest fact is that he was born again, that he repented of his sins and received Christ as Lord of his life. Then you ask God to show him in the days ahead concerning this matter. That is not a matter of, uh, you're not saved by being baptized or not being baptized. It's just an element of obedience to the Lord. It's not a premise for fellowship. But baptism is a testimony, it's an act of obedience, and it's a cause for rejoicing. It's interesting, after Philip and the eunuch were in the wilderness and he received Christ into his heart, and he said, here's, here's much water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? They went down into the water. They came up out of the water. In Acts, the 8th chapter, in the 39th verse, it said that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. I know that, uh, that that's a very important aspect of it. The night I was baptized, I have to tell you that it wasn't an easy thing for me because I got baptized. I was saved in June. The church did not have a baptismal service, and I, I believe is. I can't remember what my baptismal record says now, but it's something like November or December or something like that in Nebraska. And it was in a church building, and they had a baptismal pool, but uh, they had failed to heat it. And that water, I mean, here in Florida, you turn on your faucet in the wintertime, and your water will get about, what, 
60, 70 degrees at the most. It's usually very warm. You can at least stand it. But in Nebraska, when they turn on the water and the water runs into the baptismal pool, it is cold. I can remember in Minnesota, we used to get up in the middle of the night and I'd go turn on the faucet and let it run a little bit before I'd get a drink. And it'd be like drinking it right out of the icebox, just as cold as it could be. And I got into that baptismal pool and the pastor says, I, I, I think it'd be wonderful for Brother Joe to give a word of testimony. I sounded like that. <laughs> I could hardly say a word. It was just a terrible experience. I know in the church in uh, Denver, Colorado, Englewood, Colorado, where we first went, one week I went down to baptize some people in the baptismal pool there, and it was so cold that we could hardly talk. I tried to read the scriptures, my teeth chattered. And I said to the janitor, I said, man, that was just terrible. Don't have that happen again, please. He said, I'll take care of it. And the next week I stepped into that pool, and I had the rubber boots on, and I could hardly stand still. I'm burning my legs, the water's so hot. One fellow got into the pool and said, uh, did you bring the soap? <laughs> 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 terrible experience. But what I want to share with you is no matter what the surrounding circumstances are, there's a blessing in it for you because you know you've been obedient to the Lord. And I can still remember even after giving that testimony, walking out of there and finally thawing out. The sense I had in my own heart that I have been obedient to the Lord and I got a witness in my spirit that I have done that which was pleasing to the Lord. That's why I say it's very difficult for me to understand how anyone can say I have repented of my sins and received Christ as Lord of my life but I refuse to be obedient to what the Word of God says. Once they know what the Word of God says, I don't know how they can go on not being obedient to it. So the question is, have you been born of the Spirit of God? Have you repented of your sins and invited Christ in your heart? If so, have you been scripturally baptized? And if not, why not? If it's ignorance, this morning I've shared with you the Scriptures, very clearly what it has to say about it. Now, let me say this to you also. I've had people say, well, Brother Webb, I got baptized years ago as a child in the church, but I didn't really understand what it meant to be born again. Should I be immersed again? Well, I know of people who have been buried in coffins and they weren't dead and someone heard the noise and got them back out of there again, but later they died and they did bury them again. Back just the other day, a man in the paper had a, a terrible automobile accident and the doctors at the scene said he's dead, take him to the morgue took him to the morgue and put him in this drawer and slid him in. And while he was in the drawer, all of a sudden he awakened and started singing. Well, you can imagine what the mortician worker thought there, you know. He was in there singing. And they pulled the drawer out and I imagine he said, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that. They got him out of that drawer. Now one of these days when he dies, they'll put him in a drawer like that again and he won't sing anymore. And I, I'm simply saying... It is only for those who have died to their sins and have risen to walk in newness of life in Christ. And if you didn't before, get buried now. Now, I want to say it's not the church's requirement. It's the Lord's requirement. The Lord says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and you'll be obedient in this matter. And uh, remember, it's an ordinance. It's not a sacrament. It's an ordinance. It's an outward rite symbolizing what's already taken place spiritually inside your own heart. I remember several years ago flying out to San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, and uh, getting to drive over that a couple of times while I was out there on a business trip. And it's quite a, quite a place. There's only two towers on the Golden Gate Bridge. And each tower, I'm, I've been told, is are 746 feet high, and they're 4,200 feet apart. That's a tremendous span, 4,200 feet with no pillars and no posts. 
all a suspended bridge between them. But you'd think, boy, they'd just go right on in, you know. But I'm told that those pillars have been taken all the way down to bedrock. And when the storm hits, that bridge may sway back and forth to a great extent. But those, those big pillars do not move. And uh, when I saw that bridge, I realized what a fantastic feat of architecture there, engineering to build that thing. And then when I looked in the Word of God, I realized that there are two ordinances that God, Christ has left for the church. And I'll assure you, they're built on the rock. They're not built on this, this particular fellowship here. They're built on the rock, Jesus Christ. And the storms have come against it. Millions of people, I imagine, have been martyred for the truth of baptism. But God has not allowed it to be taken away from the church. And today I thank God that I can identify, that I can identify with Jesus Christ in his death in my behalf, in his burial in my behalf, and in my resurrection with him to walk in newness of life. And I just want to say, have you? Are you saved? Have you been scripturally baptized? If not, let me urge you to be scripturally baptized in obedience to Jesus Christ.